Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. My name is Tom Landy with the Center for Religion, Ethics, and Culture. Uh, today's talk is uh, part of the Kraft Hyatt program for Jewish Christian understanding, which supports community-wide educational initiatives that foster understanding of Judaism and Jewish culture and dialogue between Jews and Christians. We've been extremely fortunate over the years to have support from the Kraft and the Hyatt families. Because of it, in addition to the lectures during the year, Holy Cross has been able to send faculty to Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem, for the last three years. Last summer, Dan Batran took part in the program. Dan attended the sixth International Conference on Holocaust Education, a summit of more than 700 educators from 50 nations, and then participated in the intensive 19-day international seminar for educators teaching about the Shoah and anti-Semitism. I'm happy to announce that this summer we'll be sending another faculty member to Jerusalem, Professor Tom Doten. Also, we'll be sending two students to Jerusalem this summer to study at Hebrew University. I'm uh, quite excited about that. We just made the decision an hour ago, though, and the letters aren't in anybody's hands, so uh, there are no announcements yet about who they are. Uh, but today, to shift focus back, uh, we're pleased to have uh, Dan Batran will follow up uh, his trip with a talk titled Lessons from the Shoah, Why We Teach the Holocaust at Holy Cross. Dan joined the faculty at Holy Cross in 1992. He's a neuroscientist by training and associate professor of psychology who specializes in neuropsychology and psychopharmacology of anxiety and mood disorders, neurosteroids and psychotropic effects gonadal hormones, and cognition. He's past chair of the Department of Psychology and now serves as the college science coordinator, placing students with paid summer research opportunities with faculty in their field. Uh, he's highly regarded on campus, in the community, in his field, and we're glad to have him speak. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Dan. Thank you, Tom. Uh, thank you all for coming. Um, I was uh, thinking to myself, uh, Half-jokingly, of course, but one way to ensure a sober audience is to have a talk on the Shoah and the Holocaust on St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> so uh, I'm glad you all could come. Uh, I appreciate your presence uh, greatly. Um, I'd like to thank the Kraft Hyatt Fund for Judeo-Christian Understanding, uh, without which my learning at the Yad Vashem uh, would not have happened. I'm also grateful to Bill Shea, the former director of the Center for Religion, Ethics, and Culture, to Tom Landy, the current director of the Center, and to Alan Avery Peck, uh, who saw merit in my application to study at the Yad Vashem. Um, thank you, Father McFarlane and Dean Tim Austin, for your ongoing support in enhancing Holocaust education at our college. I'm also indebted to my wife, Bonnie, who saw the tremendous opportunity for this trip, uh, despite the fact that it would present her a heavy burden as she sought to take care of our children as they were home for summer vacation. Uh, finally, I thank God for this incredible life-changing experience, and it was truly a life-changing experience. Uh, you may be wondering how I came to spend nearly four weeks immersed in the study of the Holocaust. Uh, though this question may not have crossed the minds of many here today, it probably occurred to colleagues and students who know me and who know of my scholarly and teaching interests. My scholarly and teaching interests are as far removed as one can imagine from Holocaust education. I'm a behavioral neuroscientist, as Tom mentioned. I teach courses in introductory psychology, in physiological psychology, in psychopharmacology, which involves the effects of drugs on the nervous system and the treatment of various mental disorders, as well as an understanding of the effects of drugs of abuse. 
My courses have a strong leaning towards the biological. They're aimed at understanding the role of the brain in mediating many different psychological phenomena. For the past 25 years, my research program has involved the effects of gonadal hormones, steroids on brain functions, which are not necessarily related to reproductive function, physiology, or behavior. So we have these testicular or ovarian secretions. These hormones have been discovered to elicit a number of effects on sensory motor gating function, on attention, on learning and memory, and on various psychological disorders, including anxiety disorders, depression, and schizophrenia. For the past two years, I've also been incredibly fortunate to serve as the college's science coordinator. I hope it is now abundantly clear to all of you here that my academic interests are as far removed from the Holocaust as one can imagine. Even as a layperson, I would characterize my knowledge of the Holocaust and historical events of the World War as naive at best. Of course, this was before the summer of 2008. I remember when the announcement for the Yad Vashem seminar was made in an email the summer before last. I was in the lab taking a break from crunching some of the results of our latest uh, experiment when I opened that fateful email. In it, Bill Shea was inviting faculty to apply for the International Seminar for Educators Teaching About the Shoah and Anti-Semitism. The email described this as a 19-day workshop at the International School for Holocaust Studies at Yad Vashem in Jerusalem. This was the third year that the faculty from the college would be sent to participate in the seminar. I was recalling my last visit to Israel. As I was reading this email in 1995, I had been there on a sabbatical doing research at the Technion Institute in Haifa. That research experience was very central to my research program. The opportunity I was now reading about in Bill's email, however, I sadly dismissed as irrelevant to my scholarly concerns. You may have guessed that I am a firm believer in divine providence. Of course, you're free to describe the events that unfolded to coincidence as well. In any case, the next step towards Yad Vashem took place during Christmas break. My wife, an avid reader and library goer, had spotted a book she thought I might be interested in reading. The title of the book was The Neuroscience of Fair Play, Why We, in parentheses, usually follow the golden rule. The author, Donald Pfaff, is a renowned behavioral neuroscientist. Indeed, our research programs are very similar in that his work is primarily concerned with the effects of gonadal hormones on reproductive physiology and behavior. Thus, being familiar with his work and intrigued by the title, I began to read it. Pfaff notes that all religious expressions espouse a version of the golden rule to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Pfaff also points out points to its presence outside of religious contexts, embodied in the philosophy of Immanuel Kant's maxim, for example. For Pfaff, the universal expression of the golden rule suggested a hardwired program in the nervous system, one that promoted responding in an altruistic fashion. As I later acknowledge in my application, the leap from the molecular cellular levels of explanation to the social-cultural level presented by Pfaff was nothing new. It represented a growing literature that has provided empirical evidence regarding, for example, discrete brain patterns of activation in response to religious rituals, the now famous Carmelite nun study, for example, discrete patterns of brain activation in response to ethical dilemmas or empathy, giving rise to the so-called moral neuroscience, 
or even in identifying significant differences in brain activity patterns that are associated with sociopathic personality disorder of the kind that would produce Hitler, for example. I approach Pfaff's theory with the same apprehension I approach other disciplines that purport to provide explanations that cross levels of analysis. The field of cognitive neuroscience has enjoyed great advancements in technology, advancements that allowed for the visualization of the living human brain in various conditions of thought. Social cognitive neuroscience, as a subdiscipline, is particularly involved with the merging of three distinct areas of study. Pfaff was providing another instance in which reductionist, reductionistic explanations are given an ontological priority over explanations at other higher levels. Essentially, Pfaff is proposing that ethical behavior begins at the neuronal level. Thus, he brings our current understanding of brain mechanisms and neurochemistry that mediate fear, memory, compassion, affiliation, and aggression as evidence in support of this theory of neuroethics. Reclining in my easy chair, reading Pfaff's book, and contemplating his assertions on a wintry night during intercession, I was suddenly arrested by a thought. Not quite a question as much as a challenge. What are the times when we do not follow the golden rule? Was this a failure of the hardwired response system? In his last chapter, Pfaff acknowledges that, quote, the toughest problem I have faced in this book is explaining unethical behavior. It is relatively easy to account for normal, biologically regulated aggression in which animals behave in codified ways to obtain food, to attract mates, or to defend their territory. But in the human case, how are we to understand a man's violence towards women and children? How do we make sense of the repeated attempts at genocide? The closest I can come is to hypothesize a collective failure of our natural ability to see others as ourselves, end quote. If, if, followed, if you follow this argument to its logical conclusion, we find that social acts of aggression, of degradation, of persecution, of annihilation, of genocide, these violations of altruistic behavior are viewed as a breakdown in the automatic invocation of the golden rule. In other words, evil happens when good fails to happen, thus taking on a passive default value of sorts. For many reasons, my thoughts wandered from this to core issues of my belief in God and in humanity. I have learned that evil is a destructive force, of course, one to be avoided at all costs, but one that is also ultimately in God's control, as all else is. Because all that God does is for the good, ultimately evil too is instrumental. Its defeat is our ultimate purpose. My worldview then was at odds with the central tenet of Pfaff's theory. I could not agree that evil occurs passively. The Holocaust came to my mind as the clearest and most egregious ex exception to the neuroethics of the Golden Rule. Nearly four months after Kreck's initial invitation, the immediacy of that email presented itself to me at once. I finally saw how my scholarly interests related to the study of the Holocaust. Initially, I toyed with the idea, but by the first week of the new year, I was calling Bill to ask if I was too late to apply. I was not. 
and in further research for the application, I learned of studies that linked genetic influences to personality characteristics of individuals who rise to authority in an oppressive regime. Though this approach might be used to explain the rise of Hitler, it failed to explain how others were persuaded to follow. Many historians have claimed as overly simplistic the explanation that Germany and a greater part of Poland were inhabited by a populace that harbored a long-standing hatred of the Jews, waiting for the right time to strike their mortal blow. At the same time, social cognitive neuroscience has placed a premium on explaining how ethical behaviors flow from relatively simple mechanisms in the human nervous system, their permanence established by the adaptive significance they confer on organisms that possess them. However, these simple mechanisms fail to account for instances in which entire social groups have been observed to commit heinous acts on other social groups. It was in this void that my interest in the study of the Holocaust from a neuroscientist perspective first emerged. In my final paragraph of the application, I stated as my goal to develop a course that examines social cognitive neuroscience, at once highlighting its strengths as explanations of complex human behavior and at the same time indicating its limitations and shortcomings. That was my reason for going to Yad Vashem. In the months leading up to the trip, I was contacted by Yad Vashem, alerting me to the sixth International Conference on Holocaust Education, which was going to take place the week before the marathon three-and-a-half-week session I was already booked for. Now, the conference would bring together 700 Holocaust educators from nearly 50 nations across the world. I was encouraged to attend, as this would provide a grand context from which to appreciate the pending seminar. And so I went. The four-day conference featured world-renowned Holocaust educators. The morning sessions, designed to address all conference participants at once, featured a day devoted to racism and anti-Semitism in the 19th and 20th century. Another morning session was dedicated to pedagogical concerns, including teaching the Holocaust in a multicultural society. Another morning panel considered the legacy of survivors. Each morning session was followed by breakout groups of 20 to 30 participants engaged in a discussion of issues raised by that morning's series of presentations. On each of the afternoons, we were given a choice of attending one of 15 different workshops given in parallel over the course of two 90-minute sessions per afternoon. It was indeed a tremendous amount of information. Whereas I arrived with great determination to learn more that related to my stated purpose, the conference left me overwhelmed. The enormity of the project, learning about the Holocaust, cast a shadow over my proposed intentions, minimized their relative importance, and finally threatened to trivialize my presence. Initially, I fought to hold on to my target how was what I was learning relevant to my critical stance on the theory of neuroethics? Indeed, early on in the conference, I met Michael Groden, a professor of health law, bioethics, and human rights at the Boston University School of Public Health and the director of the Project on Medicine and the Holocaust at the Elie Wiesel Center for Judaic Studies, also at Boston University. He was attending the conference and was also a speaker at an afternoon session. His expertise on racial hygiene and eugenics I deemed most aligned with my concerns. From Grodin, I learned more about the racial ideology that motivated the Nazi doctrine, the pseudoscience of eugenics, 
with its roots in the United States, employed to the extreme notion that the Aryan race was superior, that biological racial purity was the driving force of the Third Reich, that the Jews, the gypsies, homosexuals, and imbeciles were contaminants of the human race. But I also learned a great many other things. I learned of the tension that exists in treating the Holocaust as a unique phenomenon, as opposed to the idea that the current atrocities in Darfur or of the recent past in Cambodia or Rwanda are instances that share more similarities with the Holocaust than differences. I learned of how the Holocaust is taught to primary school children, simply an amazing concept, at least to me. This is a target audience that is prized by Holocaust educators as most capable of affecting a positive change in racial and prejudicial attitudes. I learned of the difficulty that exists in teaching the Holocaust to Arab Israelis who view themselves as victims of an oppressive regime, a government that draws its inception from the ashes of the destruction of European Jewry. I learned of the artistic expression that emerged from the Holocaust by survivors and children of survivors. I learned of the great apprehension the Holocaust educators feel towards the passage of time when survivors of the Holocaust and their first-hand accounts will be lost. But the greatest thing I learned is that this sixth conference on Holocaust education represented an emerging discipline in its own right, populated by historians, no doubt, but infused with the insights provided by educators in various other fields of inquiry, including the social sciences and the humanities. The more I learned, the more distant I grew from my original purpose for being there. With a weekend to rest from the activities of the conference, I had an ample time to consider the seminar that I had so eagerly anticipated just a few days before. Not that I was no longer interested, but I had a foreboding feeling that my mission was slipping away. At an introductory meeting on the evening prior to the seminar series, we, 26 attendees, were asked to introduce ourselves. The introductions began to my left and proceeded away from me in a clockwise direction. By the time my turn arrived, I had to profess my enigmatic presence. I, an Orthodox Jew, was sent as an emissary of a Jesuit institution of higher learning as part of a program aimed at enhancing Jewish-Christian understanding. Though I'm sure that this alone created some bewilderment amongst my new classmates, I believe my stated intentions would surely complete their state of confusion. As a neuroscientist, moreover, I wanted to understand how the Holocaust was an exception to the theory of neuroethics. Though nearly all facing me politely feigned understanding by nodding in agreement, <laughs> I knew that I was lost. To my surprise, however, losing my sense of purpose was quite liberating. With each passing day, I found I was completely absorbed in the seminar. No longer bound by an agenda, I could attend to anything and everything. As the seminar progressed, a new purpose emerged, growing in strength from day to day. I became convinced that our students would benefit greatly from the kind of learning experience I was having. Exactly what I wanted our students to learn was not yet clear to me, but that we should provide ample opportunities to engage in Holocaust studies became an imperative. 
I began to view myself as a student of the Holocaust, as a beginner who had a great deal to learn. This was not how my seminar peers viewed me, however. Because most of my fellow students were not Jewish, they would often turn to me during our breaks with questions about what we had recently learned from my appearance. They had assumed I was an expert at everything Jewish. In exchange, I would learn from them a great deal about their efforts at Holocaust education. The students in my group were educators that serviced a diverse mix of target audiences. There were middle school and high school teachers from the inner cities of Atlanta, Tampa, and Montreal, for example. There were museum curators from Florida, from Washington, D.C., and Budapest. There were college professors from community college, liberal art colleges, and research universities. There were artists and psychotherapists who specialized in dealing with trauma victims. All were united in their quest to learn more about Holocaust education. From Monday through Friday, for three and a half weeks, we met for six to, four to six hours of classroom instruction every morning, supplemented in the evenings with site visits of relevance. We also spent days on tour, an experiential dimension of Holocaust education that is unique to Israel and to Yad Vashem in particular. We learned from the world's leading educators in the discipline. So, what did I learn of the Shoah? The word itself, Shoah, is a preferred way of referring to the Holocaust. Shoah is Hebrew for catastrophe. Why is this preferred over the more familiar term Holocaust? Holocaust is a word of Greek origin, meaning sacrifice by fire. The original sense of the word then refers to a burnt sacrifice, an ola, which is described in the Hebrew Bible as an offering of ascent. This is an animal sacrifice that was completely consumed by the pyres of the altar. The intended consequence of this offering was tikkun olam, rectification of the world. Taken literally, the term holocaust is associated with a functional consequence for the destruction of European Jewry, the sacrifice of the Jews for the salvation of the world. Clearly, it is objectionable to some. The word Shoah is preferred because it is non-evaluative. I learned of Judaism and anti-Judaism from the ancient world through medieval Christianity up to modern anti-Semitism of the 19th and 20th century Europe. Parenthetically, and in the interest of full disclosure, I'm happy to say that the history I was learning anew was somewhat familiar to my 19-year-old son, Sam, who took advantage of my travel opportunity to accompany me while he studied at the Mir Yeshiva in Jerusalem, which, by the way, is the only European yeshiva to survive the Holocaust. It survived with the help of the Japanese consul in Kaunas, Chine Sugihara. Its leaders and students managed to escape to the Shanghai ghetto. My point is that our students are also likely familiar with the historical events of the time. But Holocaust education is not a lesson in history. It provides a backdrop which takes on a very important and added significance. We toured the Yad Vashem's Holocaust History Museum. I returned there twice more before leaving. For most visitors, this is the centerpiece of the Yad Vashem complex. The museum has undergone a recent renovation, adding a great deal of space for permanent exhibits, as well as structural changes that accentuate the natural landscape presented by the majestic hills of Jerusalem. The campus of Yad Vashem features 21 different facilities on its campus, 
including the International School for Holocaust Studies, a fully equipped research building, an archives and library, the Avenue of the Righteous, the Valley of the Communities, the Warsaw Ghetto Square, the Children's Memorial, to name just a few. A recently constructed visual center features 30 or so computer terminals from which one can search a database of all visual media related to the Holocaust. From full-length films to short clips, fiction and documentary, this database contains nearly 400,000 titles. One can easily spend weeks on the Yad Vashem campus only to discover the depth of its resources. In subsequent days, we return to the classroom to learn of the societal and cultural products of the time of the literary antecedents expressed in Yiddish folklore of the 19th and 20th century, of the politics and parties in Poland between the world wars, of Jewish life in Russia during the same time period. We met with survivors, two women from two very different pre-war backgrounds, one from Germany, the other from Hungary. One lived a modern lifestyle fully integrated with German mainstream society. The other came from a shtetl, a small village of peasant Jews clinging to ways of living that had not changed in five centuries or more. Each told their tale, recalling a life that was shattered. Each described a life that was resurrected, pieced together by happenstance. Yet each had the power to drive home the most important message of Holocaust education, the personal story, putting a face on the Shoah, on the catastrophe, is the single most potent antidote to the Holocaust. Promoting ethical behavior requires that we see ourselves in the other, that we recognize that Selim Elohim, the godliness from which all of us are created, seeing ourselves in others prevents the dehumanization that is the prerequisite of all acts of human aggression. We proceeded to learn in great detail the events surrounding the rise of Nazi racial ideology the persecution of the Jews in Nazi Germany prior to World War II, the centrality of the Jewish question within the Weltanschung, and we learned of the apparent overwhelming support in Germany for Hitler. We learned of ghetto life in Lodz, in Warsaw, in Vilnius, of the transports and cattle cars jam-packed to ensure the death of at least a third of its occupants, we learned of the concentration camps in Dachau, in Belsen, and Auschwitz, and of the extermination camps in Treblinka, in Sobibor, in Chelmno, and in Auschwitz-Birkenau. We learned of the genius of the Nazi war machine, as it manipulated public sentiment in Western European nations of France, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Holland. Outright acts of inhumanity were shielded from these populaces, while civil regulations barring Jews from social life were upheld without much resistance. In Eastern Europe, Nazi Germany found natural allies among the peoples of Poland, Russia, and the Baltic states, where outright acts of inhumanity against hapless Jews were not only perpetrated, but encouraged. We learned of the final solution. And then we asked, how was it humanly possible? We listened to first-hand accounts of perpetrators and their victims. We learned of the police battalions employed to kill defenseless women and children. The stereotypical portrayal of Jews being herded like sheep to slaughter is shattered by accounts of resistance. 
These acts of resistance are poignantly captured in a poem by Chaim Guri, which hang on a picture frame at the Ghetto Fighters Museum in the Galilee for all to read. This is the poem. To smuggle a loaf of bread was to resist. To teach in secret was to resist. To cry out warning and shatter illusions was to resist. To rescue a Torah scroll was to resist. To forge documents was to resist. To smuggle people across borders was to resist. To chronicle events and conceal the records was to resist. To hold out a helping hand to the needy was to resist. To contact those under siege and smuggle weapons was to resist. To fight with weapons in streets, mountains, and forests was to resist. To rebel in death camps was to resist. To rise up in ghettos among the crumbling walls in the most desperate revolt was to resist. We're introduced to the righteous among the nations, a group of non-Jews who risked their lives to save Jews. We meet four more survivors, each with an amazing story to tell. Again, each is different as the next. Their only commonality is their shared tragedy. We're helped in the process by a psychotherapist who has worked with these survivors for Yad Vashem, and we are free to express our outrage and sorrow. As we near our final days, we examine the impact of the Holocaust on Jewish-Christian relations. We learned of the pronouncements of Pope Paul VI in Nostra Etate on the relation of the Church to non-Christian religions. This historic document stated, I quote, In her rejection of persecution against any man, the Church, mindful of the patrimony she shares with the Jews, and moved not by political reasons but by the gospel's spiritual love, decries hatred, persecution, displays of anti-Semitism directed against Jews at any time and by anyone. This landmark document in 1965, of course, is followed with a great deal of discussion. Promoting further dialogue on this issue are the views by some leaders of American Jewry on Jewish-Christian relations expressed in a full-page ad in the Sunday New York Times in the year 2000, entitled Dabru Emet, Hebrew for Speak the Truth. It offers eight statements regarding interfaith relations. Jews and Christians worship the same God. Jews and Christians seek authority from the same book, the Bible. Christians can respect the claim of the Jewish people upon the land of Israel. Jews and Christians accept the moral principles of the Torah. Nazism was not a Christian phenomenon. The human irreconcilable difference between Jews and Christians will not be settled until God redeems the entire world as promised in Scripture. A new relationship between Jews and Christians will not weaken Jewish practice. And finally, Jews and Christians must work together for justice and peace. The conversation is further prodded by a publication from the Christian Scholars Group entitled A Sacred Obligation, Rethinking Christian Faith in Relation to Judaism and the Jewish People. Sponsored by the Center for Christian Jewish Learning at Boston College and quoting from their website, it states, the group is composed of Christian scholars who are aware that they are studying sensitive issues of significant religious import. They acknowledge with sorrow and shame the church's tragic legacy of anti-Judaism and seek to use their scholarship to reclaim or reconceive elements of Christian theology and practice 
that offer a more adequate representation of its relationship to Judaism and to the Jewish people. End quote. As you can imagine, there is a lot to consider here. The title of my talk asks, Why We Teach the Holocaust at Holy Cross. Indeed, why do we teach the Holocaust anywhere? The most resounding answer is so that it should never happen again. Still, why should we teach the Holocaust, particularly at Holy Cross? Perhaps it's because our students are already inclined toward the good. Our mission statement is meaningful to those who hold social justice and civil liberties at a premium. The Jesuit heritage of our college places ethical standards and behavior as a very high priority. Members of the faculty are more than likely similarly disposed. But there's an additional element that makes Holy Cross an especially important place for Holocaust education. This element is shared by all peoples of faith. Jews and Christians have in common a core value that was lacking in the godless ideology of the Nazis. As recently expressed in a platform statement by the Jews, Christians, and Muslims dialogue group, there are unwelcome truths that we must examine before we can proceed towards the road of mutual respect. Three important statements found in that document. One, in various times in history, relations between the three communities have been marred by discrimination and violence. Two, in our scriptures and traditions, one can find passages that can be interpreted to support exclusive truth claims and a sense of superiority. And three, each faith has been notably self-centered and lacking in self-criticism. Humility has often been notably lacking, and in its place, arrogance and triumphalism have been all too evident. Conflicts, intolerance, and anarchy around the world are imminent dangers if these unwelcome truths combine with political injustice, with violations of human rights, poverty, with hatred and fear, with ignorance and globalization, war as an instrument of imperial policy, and the failure to respect international legal or ethical principles. The remedy... The remedy to all of this includes a recognition of what we have in common, accepting that our scriptures and histories are interconnected and acknowledging our mutual independence. Again, there's much to consider here too. So was my learning experience at Yad Vashem life-changing after all? Well, I can tell you that for weeks after my return, I thought a great deal about what I had learned. I read as much as I could in a very short period of time. I wanted the way I felt then to have a long-lasting impact, one that extended beyond this talk. I was inspired to promote Holocaust education at Holy Cross, but I was clueless as to how to go about doing it. One of the first things I did was to search our website for relevant information. I was delighted to discover a wealth of Holocaust resources at Holy Cross. Father Brooks who served as our president from 1970 to 1994, had a close personal relationship with Jacob Hyatt. Hyatt was born and raised in Lithuania until he left in 1935, leaving behind his parents and many other relatives, all of whom were killed in the Shoah. 
The relationship between Father Brooks and Jacob Hyatt led to the installation of the Hyatt Holocaust Collection, a wing of the Dinan Library, which was inaugurated in 1979. Presently, today, if you were to look at Kreck's website, you would find that it lists 24 separate events in the past eight years alone that were sponsored by the Kraft Hyatt Funds for Jewish Christian Understanding. That is really a wonderful, wonderful resource. The college has hosted prominent Holocaust heart exhibits, the most recent child artist in Territson. A brief survey of our college catalog reveals numerous Holocaust-related courses across our curriculum, offerings from the history department, religious studies, theater, and modern languages. A cluster of courses are also listed under Peace and Conflict Studies concentration. Yet, despite our abundant resources, Holocaust education as a curricular entity is not readily apparent. Several administrative structures already at the college suggest themselves as potential vehicles. In short, I humbly suggest that Holy Cross can do more to promote Holocaust education. In a meeting with Rochelle Bud Kaplan of the Yad Vashem's Office of Foreign Liaisons, I learned that Holocaust education becomes an institutional priority when students demand that it be so. From the ground up, the interest in Holocaust education must first emerge. The March of Remembrance and Hope is a program that's been providing the spark to unite the interests of college students throughout the country. MRH, as it has come to be known, is a student's leadership program and mission to Poland. Its mission, from its website, I quote, to teach students of different religious and ethnic backgrounds about the dangers of intolerance through the study of the Holocaust and to promote better relations among people of diverse cultures. The merits of this program in generating student interest is recognized by a number of institutional affiliates, including the National Catholic Center for Holocaust Education at Seton Hill University. Seton Hill University is a Catholic liberal arts university in Greensburg, Pennsylvania. It's the same institution that we, Holy Cross, has teamed up with over the past now four years in sending faculty to Yad Vashem. I would like to explore how we might take advantage of this program as well. More to the point, since returning from Yad Vashem, I've arranged, uh, I arranged for Stephanie McMahon Kay, the director of the International Seminar for Educators teaching about the Shoah, to visit our campus. Stephanie had a productive meeting with me, Danuta Bukatko, and Beverly Bell of the Education Department regarding a number of possible initiatives, including the development of a summer study abroad program at Yad Vashem. Stephanie also met with a number of faculty over lunch where she highlighted the resources that Yad Vashem could provide for an integrated approach to Holocaust education at Holy Cross. Parenthetically, she enjoyed her visit a great deal. Um, it had been years since she was last at the college. It turns out that Stephanie McMahon's K father, her father is an alum of Holy Cross. More recently, I've been in contact with Daniel Feldman of the International School of Holocaust Studies at Yad Vashem. He's the director of their online curriculum, which features units on Holocaust history, commemoration, and pedagogy. Ad hoc accreditation with U.S. universities and colleges has been a recent development for these online offerings. The courses run on a rotating cycle throughout the year and cater to a range of learners from introductory students to experienced educators. For our students, these courses would be an ideal preparation 
for an intensive study abroad program and could serve as a prerequisite for that program as well. Our collaboration would benefit dozens of Holy Cross students by helping them wrestle with the history of the Shoah and its legacy of confronting prejudice. I'm delighted to acknowledge, as Tom mentioned earlier, the recent launching of a study abroad program at Hebrew University. I look forward to working with Tom and others uh, who were instrumental in getting this program off the ground to ensure that Yad Vashem is, an in, is integrated into their learning experience. We're also fortunate to be in close physical proximity to many other excellent centers of study on the Holocaust. Clark University, Strassler Family Center on Holocaust and Genocide Study, is the home of the only Ph.D. granting program in the nation. Clark also offers undergraduates a concentration in this field. Michael Groden's project on medicine and the Holocaust at the Elie Wiesel Center for Judaic Studies out of Boston University offers an excellent venue to which leading ethicists and academicians are regularly invited. A consortium program in Holocaust education can be developed at Holy Cross, casting a net over many of these resources from which our students can benefit, gaining a deeper understanding of remembrance, tolerance, and compassion. Finally, just last week, I accepted an invitation to return to Yad Vashem for a 10-day graduate seminar on Holocaust education. Yad Vashem will be subsidizing the seminar program, including lectures, tours, and hotel accommodation. I'm grateful to Father McFarland and Tim Austin for providing the airfare. My visit this time has a very well-defined intention. How can I facilitate Holocaust education at Holy Cross? I am eagerly anticipating my stay. As to my originally stated purpose, how all of this got started in the first place, I'm actually encouraged that I've learned that all that I've learned on the Shoah can inform a critical perspective on the theory of neuroethics. So a new course may very well be in the offing. I look forward to working with anyone who shares a passion for the study of the Holocaust, thus promoting Christian Jewish understanding. And I thank you very much for your attention this afternoon. If anyone has any questions, I'd be happy to, uh, or we could speak later. Mark? So, how did you understand that the project was going to be about change? You know, at that pivotal moment in that meeting, I mean, it sounds like you're still interested in the neuroethics thing, right? It sounds like you've also reformulated some things that would probably go about it in a different way. Absolutely. And, and you know, it took, it took some time for me to actually appreciate where I was. I mean, initially, as I was struggling through the conference, um, trying to grapple with the reasons that I went there to begin with, and seeing that slip away slowly but surely, um, I was, I, at some point, I, I actually wondered, did, did we make a mistake here, right? Am I going to have to go home prematurely or, or not? But as I mentioned, not having an agenda was also incredibly refreshing. I don't remember ever being so energized in a classroom setting, you know, not looking, is this on the test kind of thing, uh, but actually just soaking it all in, allowing it to just take me wherever it could. And, and, and knowing so very little, I was actually a test case for what I imagined, so little about the Holocaust, I was actually a test case for what I thought our students would actually experience being in the same or similar situation. No. <laughs>
I don't. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm very, very skeptical of, of the field of social cognitive neuroscience. I'm a little less skeptical of the field of cognitive neuroscience. I'm very solid on the field of neuroscience. But uh, <laughs> the, the, what, let me explain what I mean by that. Cognitive neuroscience is, is indeed a very interesting area, a very interesting discipline, because it, it allows us to study cognition as we have for, for decades, but at the same time looking at how the brain is dealing with those cognitive problems, right? Um, the problem has been in interpreting the results, the results of these brain images. Uh, we see brain patterns that are associated with a particular way of dealing with a cognitive issue or problem, and we're very quick to jump to the assumption that the, the brain activation pattern in some way defines the cognitive issue at hand. Whereas in my mind, they are merely the same, they're descriptives of the same phenomenon, right? You have the neuro, neurological activation pattern on the one hand and the cognitive problem on the other. How do we map one onto the other is an interesting issue, but that one should cause the other, I think, is a very simplistic way of looking at it. So too, you complicate the issue when you add social into the mix. So social cognitive neuroscience. I saw a fascinating article in Science Magazine. This is not quackery. You know, this is like mainstream, high-level, high uh, you know, leading field science that's going on. In Science Magazine, an article that talked about the relationship of brain activity patterns as they relate to voting preferences, uh, you know, whether you are a Democrat or a Republican. As though manipulating brain activation patterns can make you into a Democrat or make you into a Republican. It's just nonsense. So in, in that regard, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very, yeah, always very, very, very skeptical. <laughs> we won't say what the other party is, of course. But uh, no, I mean, that, so, you know, that kind of, of crossing levels of analysis I have a tremendous problem with. And to suggest that ethical behavior should come as a result of a hardwired uh, program which ultimately draws its roots in, in genetic mechanisms is very difficult to accept. So, so then you have a problem with uh, a lot of the recent attempts to look at evolution in the moral sense. Absolutely. I, yeah, all of that to me is a throwback to you know older attempts that the selfish gene, the altruistic gene, all of these leaps between you know, genetic function on the one hand and, and moral ethics on the other. Uh, we have enough of a difficult time understanding how genes code for proteins, much less how they code for behavior or ethics, for that matter. So, yes. It may touch on what you're uh, expounding on now, but uh, at Worcester State, where I was perhaps in the middle of my fifth uh, experience teaching a three-credit course on the Holocaust a few years ago, I had mm. students uh, say, "How do you account for Hitler?" And I started giving them the biographical John Tolman, Alan Bullock, and so forth. He let me go on for two or three minutes. He said, that's not what I'm asking. How do you account for Hitler third of the way through the 20th century in a culturally and scientifically advanced nation that, that he was the, didn't do it alone, despite what some would say, the wheels coming off. I couldn't answer him. I could not account for him. As, as deep as my background was and is in the Holocaust, personal library, uh, clippings and so forth, I said, you've got me, Tony. And it, it's true. No one had ever hit me with that before, between 1993, and this was maybe, I'm guessing, 2002, 2003. Gee, I don't know. I can't do it. Absolutely. In, in the learning center at Yad Vashem, this is a complex where you can come in and sit down and, and ask 
see from a, a list of questions, many, many questions, I forget exactly how many, but in, in the dozens are asked of leading experts, different uh, historians, uh, individuals who are experts in the field, um, to, to respond to some questions. And one of the questions was, could, could the Holocaust have happened without Hitler? And, you know, knowing as little as I did at the time, and I still know very little about the, the, the whole thing, uh, you know, I, I guess that, no, it couldn't have happened without him. And I was surprised to find that some agreed with my perspective and others didn't, that there are, you know, that, that the, the field of Holocaust education should emerge itself as a discipline is no surprise because of the enormity of the project to try to explain how it happened and to prevent it from ever happening again um, is, is really a, a, an overwhelming task. Thank you.